Welcome to the sermon webcast of Good News Lutheran Church of Mount Horeb, Wisconsin. The following sermon was preached on March 19, 2017, on the basis of Romans 5, verses 1 through 8. I don't know if you've heard about the latest and greatest trend that is sweeping our nation right now. It's one of those seven-step, 30-day programs that promises to completely change your life. It started out as a best-selling book. Now there are DVDs that you can buy. There's a whole weekend seminar that you can go to. There are people on social media talking about their experiences, sharing their results. It's, it's really, really popular. And it's entitled, The Secret to Being Really Good at Suffering. Sounds incredible, right? I mean, it promises that in just a few short, simple steps, you will be better than anyone that you know at being miserable. You will experience strife in the workplace, conflict in your relationships. Your health will always be on the decline. Almost nothing will go exactly the way that you want it to go. But don't worry, chin up. You will be able to handle all of it like a champ. The secret to being really good at suffering. Are you ready to buy in? You can probably guess that I'm just making all of that up. But if there really were such a program, the secret to being really good at suffering, would you be interested? I'm guessing not. Because a program that makes you really good at suffering is sort of like a program that makes you a really good driver when one of the tires on your car is flat. Or a program that makes you really good at hobbling along when your foot is broken. Right? The reason why all of those things are absurd is because when we're dealing with things like that, we, we don't want to learn how to better deal with things like that. We just want the problem to be fixed. We want the situation to get better, right? And for a long, long time in our country, that's sort of been the American dream, that life will continue to get better, that our best days are always ahead of us, that through education and science and medicine and the right social policy, then that we can continue to improve our futures indefinitely. I'm not going to tell you you need to give up that dream today, but it is interesting that sociologists have observed a significant change in our collective American psyche in recent years. In other words, we are no longer as optimistic as we once were. In fact, today's younger generation of Americans is probably the first generation in American history who is and will continue to be convinced that their lives will be worse than their parents were. Or maybe consider the fact that Donald Trump won the 2016 presidential election, not by pointing us ahead to some better and brighter future, but really promising to bring back a better past, right? Or from the reverse side of the ideological spectrum, consider what's been coming out of Hollywood recently. All kinds of movies about zombie uprisings. Movies about dystopian futures, like the Hunger Games series, for example. Wildly popular and critically acclaimed TV shows like Mad Men and Breaking Bad and House of Cards, in each of which the main character is not a knight in shining armor who triumphs over, over evil, but rather a severely flawed anti-hero who is constantly battling against his own demons, often unsuccessfully. It seems we aren't nearly as optimistic 
as we once were. And so maybe a, a program or a book that helps you be better at suffering is a million-dollar idea after all. Regardless of what we might think about our future, at the end of the day, the Bible tells us that we are a fallen race who lives in a cursed world, which means that we don't really have the choice. We don't really have the option between suffering and not suffering. Really, the only choice that's in front of us is to suffer well or to suffer poorly. And so thankfully, what we have in the Bible, what we have in Christianity is, in fact, much better than a program. When it, when it comes to suffering better, what the Bible offers us, what our Christian faith offers us, simply cannot be beat. And in fact, out of all the sections in God's Word that talk about a better way to suffer, the Word of God that's in front of us this morning from Romans chapter 5 is maybe, maybe one of the most helpful. You'll notice that Paul begins this section of God's Word with the word, therefore. In other words, he's going to build on what he had just said to make his next point. And what he had just said was everything that we talked about in last week's sermon. And Paul repeats himself one more time. He says that through faith, we have been justified before God. In other words, not through anything we have done, but simply through trust in Jesus, we are justified before God. Which again means more than that our sins have been taken away. It also means that a limitless lifetime of good has been applied to our account. That when we stand before God, we get to take Jesus' perfect record and write it on our resume. As a result of that fact, Paul says in these verses, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, every single thing between us and God is completely, perfectly good. That sounds like a simple enough idea. And yet, do you realize what that does for you in times of suffering? You see, without that idea, the natural human tendency is to think that there is a direct link, a direct cause and effect link between suffering and behavior. It's popular these days to call it karma. But even if we call it God, the idea that bad behavior leads to suffering and good behavior leads to reward. Paul says just the opposite, that we are at peace with God. That's not to say that at times there isn't a direct cause and effect relationship between what we do and the circumstances that result. I mean, you wouldn't be surprised and you wouldn't complain about the $200 ticket that you have to pay because you were driving 90 miles an hour down the freeway, right? But what Paul is saying is that in normal circumstances, as we go through the difficult trials of life, we don't need to wonder, we don't need to worry whether God is giving us payback, whether God is doling out punishment. And the reason for that is because 100% of the payback, 100% of the punishment fell solely and squarely on the shoulders of Jesus Christ. The payment has been made, the punishment has been given. And so as a result, when God looks at us, he sees us as his closest friends and his most trusted allies. Which means that not only is it impossible for us to try to control God, try to influence him with our behavior, but, but we don't even need to. Because we are at complete peace with the God who is in control of absolutely everything. In fact, Paul describes it almost as if it's kind of like this, this special secret room, this VIP lounge that very few people get into. And he says, through faith, you're in. He says, through faith, we have access into God's grace in which we now 
stands. So, so you stand at the door and you swipe that security clearance card of faith and you get in to the room where all of God's favor and all of God's blessing, every good thing that he wants to give to his people is completely accessible to you. That's a better way to suffer. First of all, at peace with God. Not wondering if God's giving us payback, not worrying about the next time that the karma train is going to come rolling into the station, but knowing that you are at peace with God. Now, if that's the case, we'd maybe expect the program to end there. We maybe expect that this would go sort of the way when someone tries one of these seven-step, 30-day programs and it, it actually works, and suddenly it's, it's all they want to talk about. You should see the results. This has changed my life. I am never going back again. If we really are at peace with God, the God who controls absolutely everything, if we really have full access to all of his blessings, we would expect that right after we come to faith, in the very near future, we would we would be so excited about all the wonderful blessings that God is pouring out into our lives. And Paul does say in these verses that our peace with God does give us something to be excited about, something that we can't help but talk about, something that we can even boast about. But he says this. He says, We boast in the hope of the glory of God. We boast in our hope. In other words, the things that we are excited to talk about is not all, of the, not all of the blessings that immediately come to us as a result of our faith. It's not that our faith in God makes all the suffering go away. Rather, what we're excited about, what we boast about, is the blessings that we confidently expect to receive in the future. Now, you should know that here's a spot where people like to take cheap shots at Christianity. The idea being that, that God intentionally withholds all kinds of good things for us now simply to coerce us into willing obedience and submission. And so skeptics and critics of Christianity will say that that kind of makes God a little bit pathetic. That he would intentionally withhold good things from you just so that you listen to him and obey him and worship him. They'll also say that that kind of makes Christians pretty pathetic that they're willing to put up with this miserable existence here on earth just because there's some vague potential promise of reward down the future, and they're willing to put up with all of that rather than rising up and seizing the day, grabbing life by the horns, and just taking what you want. Religion becomes the opiate of the masses, as Karl Marx famously said. That's why we need to pay very careful attention to what Paul says. He says, we boast in the hope of the glory of God. That's the key phrase right at the end. The glory of God. The glory of God is that thing that defines who God is, that more than anything else makes God who he is, that identifies him as separate and distinct from everything else. It's, you might say it's God's brand. It's his identity. It's that thing whenever you see it in print or whenever you see it up on a billboard, you've got a little R with a circle around it because God has this trademarked. And Paul tells us what that is. He tells us what the glory of God is. He tells us that more than anything else, God's glory is his love. And maybe that doesn't sound so unique and so different, but Paul goes on to point out just how different the love God has for us is from the love that we experience in this world. In every other situation, love between two groups of people is connected to performance. 
In other words, when the person who is loved acts better, the love goes up. When the person acts worse, the love goes down. In fact, Paul brings up these hypothetical scenarios. Let's say someone is going to show the ultimate act of love for someone else. Someone is going to lay down their life for someone. No greater act of love than that. If someone were to do that, according to the normal rules of human love, that person that they are laying down their life for would have to be really, really good. And even then, Paul says, they might not do it. Even then, it would be a rare, rare thing. And then he goes on to say, here's God's brand of love. Here's God's unique version of love, that while we were still sinners, when there was absolutely nothing lovable about us, Christ died for us. The completely unique and otherworldly brand of love, that's where God's glory is to be found, and that's what we put our hope in. That's what we long for, to be able to experience that love fully and eternally. If that still doesn't sound very exciting to you, there's a reason for that. It's because by nature, the things that we are excited about, the things that our hearts do long for, are generally speaking all the wrong things. To use the metaphor that Jesus used with that woman at the well, the things that our souls thirst for, generally speaking all the wrong things. So often our souls thirst for things like wealth or fame or popularity or romance, the cheap thrills and the passing pleasures of this life, things that can only temporarily and partially satisfy that thirst. Sometimes our souls thirst for things that are just downright sinful. We thirst for drunkenness or illicit sex or revenge or gossip, things that do more to poison our souls than satisfy them. And so, yes, it would be rather pathetic if God were to say, I'm, I'm going to withhold those blessings from you right now, but don't worry, if you, if you believe in me, if you stay with me, you'll get to heaven, and then all of those things that your soul thirsts for, I will give them all to you. No, instead, God uses suffering to teach us to thirst for different things entirely. He causes those things that our soul so often thirsts for to become bitter in our mouths, to taste and to thirst for something else. He causes us to develop a more sophisticated palate, you might say. He uses suffering to cause us to thirst for what he alone can provide, that water of life, his unconditional and absolute love for us in Jesus Christ. And guess what? We don't even have to wait to find out whether that can truly satisfy the thirst of our souls because Paul says, we know that this hope will not disappoint us because already, right here, right now, God has poured out that love into our hearts through his Holy Spirit. Right here, right now, as as we thirst in our souls for something that nothing in this world can satisfy, right here, God is present to pour out the one thing that can in abundant measure into our hearts. In confirmation class with the teenagers and in page one with the adults, I often use the illustration of a water tower. That God's love demonstrated to us in Christ Jesus is like this huge, limitless supply of water. And yet, just like the water in the water tower, it it doesn't stay 
somewhere out there. No, instead, God has established a system of pipelines, a system of channels so that he can distribute it to us individually. We call that system of pipelines the means of grace, his word and his sacraments. God has attached his promise to those things that every time we get thirsty and come running to his word and to his sacraments, it's like turning on the faucet and and the one thing that can satisfy our souls is there in limitless and abundant supply. That's a better way to suffer. First of all, at peace with God, not worried about him sending payback, but at peace. And second of all, with hope in the glory of God. Not wondering whether God is playing keep away with us and withholding his best blessings until we get to heaven, but knowing that right now he is using suffering to teach our souls to thirst for something else, and even now is pouring that very thing out into our hearts, his unconditional love for us in Christ Jesus. Friends, as we suffer, may God teach all of us to thirst for what he alone can provide, living water, so that we will never be thirsty again. Amen. For more information about Good News Lutheran Church, visit www.goodnewslc.org.